pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. And eager to do what he can He may be a joy But don't send a boy To do the work of a man Marlene the Magnificent It was hard for a man to look at her and keep to the rules That was her trying That was her trying too hard Mal Ferrer Wanted for every crime under the sun, but there wasn't a jail he couldn't break to reach the woman who wore his brand. Arthur Kennedy, driven on to find an unknown killer. Men are funny, and all men are jealous. Frenchy only gave me one of these. What about that? Oh, that. It was part of my cut. Kinch gave it to me. It was Kinch. Ah. What's the matter? Now the game is over and I can tell you what's been choking me every minute since I chased after you. Tell you who wore that brooch before you did. It was a girl. A girl that I was going to marry. A girl the last time I saw was lying on the floor outraged and butchered by the man who took that from her and gave it to you for 10% of her life. You're not going to meet Byrne. He wouldn't have me because I belong to you. I don't believe a word of you. I'm asking you where you're going. Away. Away from here. The Baldy Gunners or the Golden Dollar or the Arcady or any saloon that'll have me. I'll kill you before you do it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Otto Bruno. Mike, happy to be here as always. Also back in the booth, this time as a co-host, is Mr. Jonathan Penner. We are going to need a bigger boat. We kick off a month of discussing some classic American westerns with a look at one directed by a German emigre, Fritz Lang, with Rancho Notorious. Released in 1952, it is the story of a ranch hand, Vern Haskell, played by Arthur Kennedy, and his quest for revenge after his fiancée is killed by a couple of low-darn varmints. What were not fit to breathe air? Yes, it is a story of hate, murder, and revenge. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, go ahead and track down the movie and come on back after you have seen it. We will still be here. So, Otto, when was the first time you saw Rancho Notorious, and what did you think, sir? Uh, the first time I saw it was about 72 hours ago. I had actually never seen this one before. Uh, so I was very, I mean, I had heard of it for years, but I had never seen it before. And the first time I watched it again today, but the first time I saw it a few days ago, uh, it struck me as odd, actually. <laughs> 
certainly not a typical uh, Western. I don't think of that time period. Of course, I, I shouldn't say this probably, but we're here to have a serious discussion. But as I'm watching Marlene Dietrich, all I can think of is Lily von Stupp from Blazing Saddles. Everything from the the singing to the sitting backwards on the chair. I mean, Marlene gives it uh, all to us in this film. It's really not a bad Western, but I'll tell you the other interesting thing for me that that struck me, most obvious uh, thing that struck me, was I don't feel that Arthur Kennedy, he he just doesn't pull off a, a Western for me in this film he especially you know he's supposed to be i understand he's compelled in this movie by hate murder and revenge but he really in my opinion chews up the scenery in a couple spots where it almost kind of i can't take it seriously you know what i mean but overall it is still i mean it's ultimately it's still dietrich it's still fritz lying and and it's it is Interesting. It's a good movie to watch. It's just not a great Western, in my opinion. Jonathan, how about yourself? Well, I'd seen it relatively recently when I found out we were going to be doing this. I also had never seen it, had always heard about it. I kind of mixed it up with Johnny Guitar somehow, I think, in my in my mind, right? But I think the truth is we wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't Fritz Lang, and it wouldn't be wouldn't have been the interesting picture that it is. Without Fritz Lang, you know, I think he and Daytrick had had an affair at some point is, is my sense. And she seems to be battling with her own past as the von Sternberg heroine or woman that he had created in the movies. And I think Fritz Lang wanted something. I'm calling him Lang. I'm calling him Long because I'm listening to the two of you. I don't know. Was, I, you know, and, the, and it's one of these things, right? You folks at home, you know. It's a name that you've read a million times and you've discussed in these forums, but did he say Lang or Long? I don't know. Anyway, he, she, she feels very constrained by her by her history to me, that, that he was either trying to get her to break out, to play it a little bit differently, or she was trying to break out and he said, no, no, we, you know, they made me hire you, honey. You got to do that thing with the sitting backwards on a chair. The crazy thing for me about the about the movie, I think you're right, is the casting, right? And you get to see, you know, we most of us watch sort of classic movies that have been deigned classics. And then you see a movie like this, and it's got, who are these two guys who were, if not big stars, they worked in Hollywood for years and years. He was nominated for like three Academy Awards or something over the course of his of his career. And I think it's because he was a New York actor who was coming up right around the time that Brando had come up, Montgomery Clift, and everyone was looking for the next guy. And that style was the, that style. You know, they wanted that New York uh, actor's studio thing that he seemed to bring to the table. And he's not a bad actor, but he's, you know, no one talks about, oh, man, we got to go see the, the next uh, Arthur Kennedy movie. You know, that's... So let's go out and see an Arthur Kennedy. And, and and Mel Ferrer, you know, is a guy who he was in War and Peace. That's where he, he you know, he and, and his wife, Audrey Hepburn, worked together. He did a lot of stuff. He was obviously a very smart, talented, gorgeous guy. He's 
20 years too young for this part. They put a little gray in his hair to try to make him seem old enough to be this old gunslinger. He looks like he's 12 years old, you know. So, but that's like the Hollywood system. That's who they, that's who was around. He was hot enough that they cast him. And Fritz Lang said, I don't care. Okay, let's go shoot. You know, they had two minutes for each take and they shot and shot and shot. So I found it fascinating to watch. And we could talk about the movie itself. I, I really enjoyed it, but mostly because I'd never seen it. The, the reason we keep saying hate and revenge is because there's this wacky song about Chuckaluck, and we'll talk about Chuckaluck, I'm sure. It was originally going to be called like the Ballad of Chuckaluck. Yeah, the Legend of Chuckaluck. The legend of Chuckaluck, like that, whatever yeah. the fuck that means. And that's part of the story. What's a Chuckaluck? You know, as he tracks down what a Chuckaluck is, and the singer of the song goes, hate, murder, and revenge, about five times over the course of the movie, which makes it really weird to a modern sensibility and annoying a little annoying, annoying. yeah i mean it's it's like becomes camp you know was it ever not camp is the question in 1952 was that like oh yeah this is a cool serious movie with this guy singing hey i'm not gonna do it again you know in the middle of the movie i don't know i don't know I had never seen this one either, and it just kept coming up. I was like, ah, we haven't talked about nearly enough Westerns on the show. So I went out and I did a whole bunch of like, all right, what are the best Westerns? What are the mo- the best unseen Westerns? What are things that I should be looking at? So I came up with a very unusual list. And oddly, I think almost every single one of the movies that I'm talking about this month has a big ballad at the beginning or had a song that would take off outside of the the movie itself. It wasn't like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a phenomenal song, but I don't think that's actually part of the movie. But 310 to Yuma, I can't remember if Johnny Guitar's got one. Well, yeah, High Noon's got a fantastic song. But what what's the other one that we're talking about this month? This one is like a musical. You know, th- this movie, With it what, reminds no, me a lot. No, she sings like three songs, doesn't she? Yeah, she sings songs. They've got the balladeer that takes us through here. And it really reminded me of Fritz Lang's You and Me, which I had never seen until last year up in Rochester, New York, where it was a crime drama about all of these criminals that all worked at a department store. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of similar to this ranch that Marlena Dietrich has with all of these criminals that work there. It drove me crazy looking at the trivia for this one. And and it was like, well, this was originally supposed to be called, you know, Chuckaluck or the Legend or Chuckaluck or whatever. But then they changed it to Rancho Notorious. And that didn't make any sense because there is no ranch. And I'm like, yeah, there is, stupid. This hideout for all these notorious bad guys, you know, like Jack Elam spends his summers there. Jack like, you Elam. know. Where <laughs> his eye went really. Holy shit. Yeah. It's interesting what you're talking about, that Fritz Lang has these sort of criminal enterprises as you were talking it made me think of of m of dr mabuza you know maybe it's just easier to shoot or interesting to shoot criminals kind of sitting around talking about being criminals which is which is a lot of the second half of this movie actually it was interesting to me watching them are they going to split this up can they trust each other they don't trust each other they're good criminals bad criminals, people who fall into it. And the implication at the end of the picture, spoiler alert, is that this guy has trained himself to be a killer, and now he's going to go ride the range as a, as a killer. And he started off as a perfectly innocent man driven to 
rape, murder, and revenge. And his life is going to end at the end of one end of a bullet, you know, I think. You've got the musical aspect, which also you and me is a musical, but this feels much more like some of Fritz Lang's films noir than it does even a Western. I know he made at least two Westerns before this. The one about, was it Jesse or Frank James? I can't remember. Frank James, I think. Frank James. There's at least one other, but really with this whole idea. So the movie starts off with like, it basically starts where a lot of other movies end, where you've got the man and the woman and they're going to get married and, you know, gives her the ring and she's got this jewelry and then he leaves and in comes this bad guy. Was it Till is the guy's name or Kinch? Kinch, Kinch. right? Kinch. Kinch. Kinch comes in with his partner and Whitey with, with the worst <laughs> haircut. This guy's got the worst General Custer style haircut and they rape, murder, and revenge. Well, they rape and murder this poor girl. And that sets our main character, Vern, the Arthur Kennedy character onto this path. And it becomes this whole investigation where he is just like, oh, he's going, he's listening to these stories. You've got all these flashbacks. It's not typical noir as far as like this isn't told as a flashback, but you've got these flashbacks in here. And these flashbacks are amazing, especially as he gets closer and closer. He gets little hints of stuff like meets this guy in a barber shop who mentions Alter Keen. And you're just like, ooh, what the hell is, what is Alter Keen? Yeah, what is an Alter Keen? Yeah. Yeah. And there's mention of Chuckaluck at that point. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And then he moves on after he has a gunfight with that. He moves on and he meets this whole gaggle of guys on this porch, including Fred Mertz himself, William Frawley (laughs) sitting there. Sitting there like kicking stuff and almost going like, I'm so mad. You know, I'm really frustrated. Sort of, Fritz was saying, show us how frustrated you are, Fred. Show us. More frustrated, Freddy. I feel like I might be the TV addict here among the trio. Oh, no, for sure. That particular sequence and that flashback and everything. In the flashback, you have the professor, Russell Johnson, from Gilligan's Island. He runs the Chuckaluck ring. The guy telling the story is an, a character actor named Dick Elliott, who played Mayor Pike in the Andy Griffith show. He was the, there were two mayors on the Andy Griffith show. Dick Elliott was the first one, and then sadly he died like in the second season. And then Fred Mertz, William Frawley plays. What's he? What's he play? The guy who. And the place. Yeah, Baldy. 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 Yeah. There you go. Baldy. And yeah. and. Superman is in the movie, too. Right. George Reeves. Exactly. George Reeves with with a scratch on his face playing this sort of ladies man stud, you know, who who, of course, Arthur Kennedy suspects because he's has a way with the ladies. You know, he doesn't imply that he's a, a rapist. And when he sees the scratches on his face, he's just like, oh, those could have come from my gal because that was back in August. And by the time he catches up with these guys, it's springtime. And that's the last shot they show of her when you see her dead body is they show her fingernails. And yeah. You know, we talk about that she was raped in the film. And there's, of course, you don't see anything. It's all done outside. You're sort of with a little kid who's playing in the dirt. And he hears sort of two screams. And then they, you know, go inside. And as Arthur gets there to find his beautiful the dead body of his beloved, somebody says, like, she was spared nothing. And that's enough for the audience and for him to say, 
holy crap, I got to get these guys. And the audience is like, you got to get these guys. And you see nothing, hear nothing, and it does it all so artfully. I really loved that. That, you know, in a modern movie, they would have spent, they really would have put her through it. And the truth is, the story is not about that. It's about this guy is driven to to hate, murder, and revenge. Your mileage may vary with this movie. It is an unusual film, but I feel like while I'm watching this in the hands of a master, I'm in the hands of somebody who knows how to handle this and knows how to dole out information to me, knows how to shoot a scene. So I feel like I'm safe while I'm watching this and I'm just like waiting for the next twist or turn because Lang just can do that. Which in the first half of the movie come like, I mean, maybe a course of the whole movie. It only gets a little muddy for me. And how did you guys feel about this? The actual emotion that she was going through, whether they were really saying that she was falling for him, that he was falling for her, that he was over his girl and he could have a life with Alter Keen and then he... And then he throws it back in his in her face. That incredible scene about you know you see the blood and all the innocence on the, the blood of the innocence on the floor. I was I didn't know exactly how I was supposed to feel about the two of. Them. That's a great point. Is that when I watched it the first time, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, wait a minute, is Vern actually falling for her now? And you do believe that. I mean, again, I give Fritz Lang credit for this. He dra- he draws you into that to think, oh, he's even he's falling under her spell now. But then as soon as he gets the information he needs from her as to where she got that brooch, then bingo, man. He turns on her so quickly and so violently that you're thinking, wow, he, he even sucked me in because I thought he was actually falling for her. And, Clearly, he wasn't. He just he was on the trail of that information and he would do whatever he had to do to get it. And, you know, he, in my opinion, his acting was better (laughs) with with Alter trying to get his information. than ultimately it is when he kind of goes over the top a little bit for us. Well, I did read an interesting article talking about was this, you know, this is 1952. This movie comes out. You've got. A German actress, the main, you know, above the title, I think, is Marlena Dietrich. And then you've got Fritz Lang in the director's chair. Is this Lang working out issues with what happened in World War II? I mean, this whole thing of like Arthur Kennedy when he's just like, Look around you, Ola King. What do you see in there? A bedroom or a morgue? Look over here. Through that window, what's that? A courtyard or a graveyard? And he's like, he's like addressing Germany at that point. <laughs> and then that her lover's name is Frenchie. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. All right. I can almost see where you're coming from with that stuff. Because I was like, yeah, there. it is very interesting that she's she's almost reprising her role of Frenchie when she was in Destry Rides Again, which I always thought was a sequel. I never realized that there is no Destry, that Destry Rides Again is the name of the yeah, that that's it. So even though I guess there was a Destry movie that was made like decades later, but anyway, yeah, I was like, this is a very particular choice to have her in here. And also her wardrobe is very interesting. Like, yes, there are some times where she's got like these Lily von Stupp type outfits, and then she's also dressing in drag at the same time, which is, you know, like that's like Marlena Dietrich's whole shtick, right? Is like playing with the whole gender roles and stuff. But like I think the first time he rolls up on her when 
Rancho Notorious, she's got jeans and this shirt on. She's got dirt on her face and stuff. And then, like, later on, you get to see, and we've already seen in flashback, the glamorous Alter Keen as she's riding that guy across the floor uh, where he just thinks that's the funniest thing in the entire world, that he's laughing the entire time as he goes into the flashback and then laughing on the way out. And I'm just like, this looks like it's right out of the Blue Angel. This is what she would do to that guy in that movie. You know, this is it was like Marlena Dietrich's greatest hits almost. The idea, and it is an idea of a, I don't know, good time girl, right? A saloon girl. They would never say she was a, a prostitute, but she was madam. She was, I don't know what she was. She was that that icon of, of Westerns that you never say she's a, a hooker prostitute but she's making her money somehow and not just by selling singing songs in a saloon right and then so she gets out of that you know years later she settles down running this criminal enterprise with dirt on her face wearing ranch hands clothes if they did it that movie today the transformation would be kind of absolute right she'd have cut off her hair or something like that she'd be much tougher and you don't i mean i don't believe marlena daytrick has lifted anything heavier than a cigarette holder in her entire life you know so so they could dress her up like that all they want but she's not you know and she can act tough you know my my cuts always 10% you know put it on the table but you don't believe she's going to hit anybody or do anything to anybody didn't I loved it. I love seeing her. She's 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 radiant, but it's just movie star casting. Apparently, Lang and Dietrich had had an affair years before. She talked about this film in the years following it. Uh, she did not like this film. She did not like making this film. Lang, of course, as I'm sure you guys already know, but he was notoriously <laughs> not a favorite director of most actors because he could be very brutal and cruel, I guess, and set to most actors. But I don't know if, if he made a crack then, or if he did this in later years, but he talked somewhat about how much makeup she had to use because remember in this, this is 1952. So what she's, She's like 51 now when this movie gets made. So she is getting a little long in the tooth, but she's not giving an inch on it. And again, she's old enough to play the guy who plays Frenchie's, you know, mother. Well, that's that's like what you said is that is that the the oddest thing about this is the casting. It's just we it's just and and it and the strange the two strangest are Kennedy and Ferrer. They just don't seem to fit in. I mean, even I know Mike uh, got a kick out of um, I think his name was John Doucette, the guy who plays Whitey uh, with the with the long <laughs> the long locks at the beginning. He was in a ton of westerns. Sure. Jack Elam obviously was in a ton of westerns. The other guy who was strange that I didn't really remember from too many westerns was dan seymour he played the the indian like he was supposed to be half indian or oh, something comanche or something comanche was pete name. or something i think his name was well that's dan seymour from um you know uh to have and to have not that's what i think of when i think of dan seymour but the character guys played you know it's like 
Today you're an Indian. It's like, you know, you see the filmography of Boris Karloff or one of these real superstar character guys. You're from India. You're, you're you know, you're from Egypt. You're, you're from Africa. You're from wherever the hell you're from. You're Polish today. And, right. and you know, a character actor played everything. They never cast anybody except these these guys. You know, it makes me think about, about the big sure. producer, right? This was an RKO picture. This was a Howard Hughes production. And did he just not have the male stars under contract that some of the bigger studios had? I don't know. I guess if I'd done more research, I'd be able to sit here and say, well, you know, Howard uh, Hughes didn't have the male stars. But it just makes me think, how did this particular cast come together? I did, in my research, I did find one like call sheet or a a day out of days shot shot list and they were literally giving him five minutes per setup something like that it's breaking broken down from like 936 to 941 shoot the master then you push in shoot the close-ups and i don't know how quickly this thing was shot but that's what it looks like right it was you know is there a single close-up in the whole movie i don't know if there is well things i've read have said that hughes was ironically very tight with the buck the only person he ever spent a lot of money on for a filmmaker for a film was jane russell but beyond that i don't think there's a perfect example right who none of us can there was a huge expensive movie the outlaw with jane russell who played billy the kid what's the guy's name i don't even know he was a nobody yeah he was a nobody yeah he had no career after that whoever the guy i can't even remember it now but but like you're saying those character guys could do anything but an arthur kennedy and a mel ferrer as good as they are they can't do anything you know it's just not it's not quite the same casting is so interesting in that way it's like folks who were hot maybe they didn't even use that term they were under contract they were a rising star somebody who's up and coming and he had some success in this movie or that movie. And then you look at a picture like this and you say, well, how the hell did they get these two guys? It's because at the time they were taking a shot and they were hoping that they turn into Tom Cruise and not Judd Nelson, you know, who were both up and coming guys, 40 years, whatever it is. Again, Arthur Kennedy worked Till the day he died, both these guys wound up in Europe shooting bad exorcist ripoffs and wound <laughs> up on Columbo. And, you know, they worked forever. Mel Ferrer was a producer and a director also. He was one of the producers on, on Wait Until Dark, helped his wife, Audrey, who was a much bigger, became a much bigger star than, than he did. He's had one hell of a career. He shows up in the oddest places. He's in that, I'm sure you've seen this one, Jonathan, The Visitor from 79 yes, with Space I have, Jesus. I've experienced that movie. Oh, boy. But he's a, he makes everything better that he's in, but he's usually just not in it very much. You know, he just will show up for a couple of scenes and then do his thing. I like him in here, but he does disappear for probably half of the movie. Yes, and he's to me, he's an actor. Arthur Kennedy is taking some chances, right? He's playing the much more emotional part, but he's really putting himself out there, successfully or or not. And Mel Ferrer is a kind of actor who would never fail. He's a kind of actor who would never fail. He played a very, very tight sort of range well, never went too high, never went too low. He was gorgeous to look at. He's this big strapping guy. And he was just kind of there. 
like a million guys who are not Gary Cooper or Clark Gable or Cary Grant, who were much more than that, but they needed to put a body in there, and so they'd stick somebody like that. I'm, I'm denigrating him, and I don't mean to. What I'm saying is he was not an untalented guy, but he's not a brilliant actor. Oh, yeah. Just he was a, a type, yeah, basically. Yeah. He's kind of like white bread. <laughs> exactly. You know, he'll first do no harm, right? He didn't fuck the movie up. He just doesn't make it sing. And yeah, Arthur Kennedy, he reminded me so much of like a Van Heflin, just like yes. the way his eyes are. And yeah, he was just, he's Van an Hef- odd, wow. odd looking person. There's the three of us who look like we do. I mean, you know, he was, I mean, he was, uh, he was off because he looked like a human being. That's what I mean, you know. <laughs> He didn't look like a movie star, but he just looked like a, a guy. I almost wonder what it would be like if if Kennedy and Ferrer had switched places. Because Ferrer is, to your point, it is just a little bit of you know gray that they're putting in his hair to make him look older. But really, he, he could probably have played more of a wet behind the ears. I'm trying to find this person and become that investigator. I, I haven't, I'm not familiar enough with his filmography to know if he's ever been in a film noir, because I think that would probably be interesting if he was that protagonist trying to track somebody down. And then, you know, you've got Arthur Kennedy, who seems like he could be more of that seasoned gunfighter if he wanted to. So it's interesting the way that they have this. I think Mel Ferrer is younger than Arthur Kennedy. I I would not be surprised. I, I, I you know, we can do our little, somebody's typing away. Now, no, he's not. He's somebody's watching, typing away. But they're basically the same age. And it's always funny when, you know, well, there's the kid. It's like when you watch The Sting. And 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 Robert Redford, who is great and had an Oscar nomination for the part, is the kid. He's the wet behind the ears kid who's about to go into his first big con after being in the in the small time league. You know, I mean, and he's three years younger than than Paul Newman or something. You know, who's the old grizzled guy? And it's just well, because we could get them. How do you wind up with him as the kid and him as the old grizzled guy? Because they said yes. And that's how you wind up, you know, with casting like that. Just so we know, Arthur Kennedy is only three years older than Mel Ferrer. Yeah. And Marlena Dietrich is 16 years older than Mel Ferrer. So so Arthur Kennedy is playing a, you know, a 17-year-old. I mean, you know, this is really what, in, in those days, he was about to get married to his sweetheart. They weren't married. So he's, maybe he's 18, he's 20 years old on a ranch. And and Mel Ferrer has been out and about, you know, he's he's old gunslinger. Somebody's <laughs> coming up who's going to be faster than him is coming up behind him. And he's actually three years younger than Arthur Kennedy. It's it's fucking weird. It's hilarious, right? You know what I was thinking of earlier when we were talking about the fact that Kennedy's character is is driven by hate, murder and revenge. It's really a Western character. That could have been played by Jimmy Stewart and directed by Anthony Mann at the same time. The Stewart character that he was playing for Mann in these westerns at right. this. When is Winchester seventy three? It's like what you're talking. It's about. around. Yeah, they're all around. They're all like fifty to fifty six or something like. They're in that general area, forty nine to fifty six, something like well, that. Maybe, maybe you know this notion of the guys, and I'm making this up as I go. But if you know you were off to war. This is a little later, you know, if you if you came back from the war and your woman had some done something else, been with somebody else, thought you were dead, thought you had moved on. 
you know, these stories of 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 guys who will spend their lives searching for trying to make up for what they lost, the promise that he he had for his whole life. He says, We're gonna have a ranch, we're gonna have four kids, or you know, let's have what did she say? Like one a new every- one every August. <laughs> yeah, one for every August. And as I'm sitting there, I'm saying, Oh, so in December, when it gets real cold, they're gonna cuddle up, make a kid. In August, they're gonna have a kid, and you know, let's have 12 kids or something crazy, right? Yeah, I'm like she's never going to not be pregnant, you know, and he's going to spend the rest of his life, I don't know, filling in that hole of what he's lost. And of course, as the father of three children, immediate thing I thought of was, oh, that's funny, lady. Once you have the first one, (laughs) by the time that next December comes along and that kid is three months old, you're not going to have the time to to fool around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get off of me. Get away from me. I agree with you. Like, man and, and Stuart could have definitely done something like this, but you don't get the weirdness then. You don't get the barber trimming one guy's hair and shaving the other at the same time. What the fuck? I was like, was, wait a second. Is he really cut, doing that? They cut the budget or something, right? There was another extra and he needed an extra $5 if he was going to cut the guy's hair. And they, yeah, I don't. I mean, something crazy happened like that. All right, you do it both. It was a one-day shoot, you know. Fritz, you just do them both. No one will pay attention. You get the fight between Frenchie and and Vern, and it can't be handheld because the camera's probably weighed 150 pounds at that point. But they're doing something, something with the camera, yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? I thought, like, because some of it was actually out of focus. I was like, this is interesting. And then there were the two, two or three clearly studio set dialogue scenes that are supposed to be out, out in the- in With the, those big fake rocks? Right. These crazy hand paint, like painted by one of us. I mean, again, there was some- Well, no, not by me, because these were beautifully well, hand painted. <laughs> they were beautifully but. hand painted, but there was no, I mean, maybe an audience would have sat there and not known the difference, but it's so clearly- not shot on location, that it almost becomes its own meta moment. You know, it was uh, kind of fantastic, actually weird. Exactly. As you say, weird. It almost felt like a, like a modern version of Metropolis or Siegfried or something like that. It was so clearly artificial. Yeah. And a lot of the articles talk about that. And I didn't, that didn't bother me. I'm kind of like you guys, I kind of liked it in a weird way. There was no mistaking that it was that it was not real, but it really again it wasn't I'm always my attitude always is as long as something doesn't take me out of the story, I don't really care, and that doesn't really take me out of the story because it's really not a western about being on the trail, really, you know. So much of it is shot in the ranch or in the saloons or, you know, it's not one where there's a cattle drive or something like that. So that wasn't that important to me personally. I mean, Mike, I caught that thing too, the whole thing about with the barber doing two men at once. And I'm looking at that and I said, I have never, ever seen this. Maybe it's so funny. Maybe it happened to Fritz. Once in, in Germany, he said, no, no, it'll be funny. It's good. Do it. The people will wonder what's happening. 
Well, I know. I'm wondering is like, is that supposed to show that the the town is growing too fast, so they can't even get enough bar? I mean, I I didn't get it, but you're, I think you're giving it honestly too much credit. <laughs> I, think they, I think they didn't want to pay the guy. They gave all the lines for one guy to the other guy, and they saved some money to just you know let him let him. They said if there's two guys. They wouldn't let the two of them fight. One of them would jump on the guy or some some logic thing like that, you know. I like this whole setup that Marlena Dietrich's character, Alter Keen, bizarro name, that she had where she's taking 10% of the cut of anybody that wants to stay at her place. She's taking 10%. And then you can stay there. It sounds almost like as long as you want. You do have to work. And there's no fighting, I think, is the other rule. And I can't remember if there's a No asking rule. questions. There you go. Great setup. And then at one point during the movie, all of the guys get mad at her. And I'm like, where did this come from? Because she was taking the money. She was because she was a less bad criminal than they. I mean, something like that. It reminded me. Have you guys read? It's not in the movie, any of the movies of The Getaway. But in the book, The Getaway, it ends in Mexico in a place like this. Except it's literally hell. The bad guys, if you can get across the border, that question of like, well, okay, we're going to get across the border and get away. Where do you go? The federales are still after you. And there's a town somewhere in Mexico run by criminals for criminals, but you got to pay for everything. And if you can't pay once you've run out of money, you're going to kill each other or you're going to sell your body or you're going to sell your body parts. I mean, it's literally, literally hell. And, and, this isn't that, obviously, but this notion, is this a modern notion? Was this a noir notion that there were these hell pits of criminals, that 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 criminals could work together and take care of each other, and of course they were going to turn on each other all the time? That's nothing that I've seen in a modern movie, except maybe Reservoir Dogs or something. I don't know. I'm just sort of spitballing here, because it's an interesting concept that they didn't make a hell of a lot out of. That there's this place that you can go run by the most gorgeous woman, literally, on Earth, and she runs it with an iron fist, you know? It's kind of weird, right? When I was watching this the first time, I thought, gee, they could make more of a movie just about that idea. And yes, Mike, I was with you. I was like, really? 10%? I don't think is a lot because... Yeah, that's not so bad. Right. You're saying you're so safe here. Nobody knows. And you have this... Clearly, they have this system set up. I mean, they've got the lookouts, but then they have some alternate place to go to if someone comes in, like the law or somebody else that they have to escape from. I mean, they had that system down. They got everything. You know, they wiped every trace. Yeah. And Marlena Dietrich sings to you. Right. 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 For 10% of the cut. For 10%. Yeah. It's actually not a bad idea for where's the Rancho Notorious TV show? You know what it is? It's the it's John Wick. It's the it's the what's the name of the it's host? the Continental. It's yeah, Continental. it is totally the Continental. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. By the way, the other thing that I thought of, and I think I read this in some of the articles too, was the Big Heat, which was Fritz Lang, which was yeah. is either the year before this or the year after this. Basically, it's almost the same exact story because you know, in in Big Heat, it's. It is his wife who gets killed. In this one, it's his fiance. But then the whole rest of the picture is that quest for revenge. So when you said earlier, Mike, about this being like a noir, 
it's like a western noir and again i think being inside uh instead of being you know on a lot of location shooting i think that lends itself more to the noir feeling of it as well yeah you don't get the vistas you don't get monument valley i mean the closest thing you get to that well of course there's the fake stuff which is great but you get i think the very end shot you get more of a naturalistic thing and even with that it's kind of odd because you get the narrator the 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 singer comes back and you got kennedy and and farrar and they're just riding out into the distance almost it looks like they're either buddies or lovers just going off together and then you get the singer being like oh yeah and they uh went off and they shot each other and we don't know if anybody survived i'm like what what a weird way to end this I thought what, what, what they were saying was that, that was, they were like ghosts, not really ghosts, but they left it as if they had died. And now that they're gone, they can move forward into, you know, they new adventures. Yeah, something like that. I See, and I couldn't figure any of that out. And the second time I watched it. The three it, of us are smart. That's, speak for yourself. The second time I watched it today, I'm like, I'm going to make sure I keep my eyes on what they're wearing right before we see them riding off. And neither of them are wearing the same thing. So it's obviously not either of them or it's them. It's their ghosts who change wardrobe or it's two other guys or I don't know what. Well, of all the things you guys brought up Howard Hughes earlier, and I think of all the things he had an effect on the ending. And I'm like, okay, it's, Again, it's kind of appropriate for this movie. It's off, and you don't exactly know exactly what's happening. So kind of makes sense to me that he would be like, no, no. Yeah, first off, change the title. Nobody knows what Chuckaluck is. <laughs> and Chuckaluck, it's so, it would be so weird had they called this The Legend of Chuckaluck, because Chuckaluck is how Frenchie makes her money and how she escapes the clutches of Baldy. And you've got that whole thing of, you know, Mel Ferrer comes over and is like, no, no, I'll man the wheel. Thank you very much. Because we know that the game is fixed, but poor professor from Gilligan's Island doesn't know that she's not shilling. Yeah. Yeah. She's not shilling. She's not like, look at how easy this game is. I'm going to make all this money. This is fantastic. He doesn't know that. And then by the time like the fix could be in, Ferrer comes over and is just like, mm, I'll take care of this wheel. Don't worry about it. So he ends up giving her her money, basically. And then after that, there's no more Chuckaluck in this movie. <laughs> right, after all that searching for Chuckaluck, that's the first half of the movie. And then you go to Rancho Notorious. And no, you also go to prison. No, the ranch is called Chuckaluck. It's not. That's why in the film, oh, right, right. the no, film right. is named Rancho Notorious, but oh, the, the ranch is Chuckle. That's where they're heading to. The, right. She named the ranch after the money she earned with the wheel. Because Correct. she got that. But I was going to say, like, there's no game, though, at that point. No. There's no Chuckle no, 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 game no, no, at right. her place. There is no. this weird sequence, the classic, I'll get myself thrown in jail with the guy that I'm trying to befriend so we could break out of jail together and then I'll be his partner. Scene. Oh, I saw that in a thousand spaghetti westerns. Right. Yeah. That's, that, this was not the first version of that scene, but the political situation in the town is very much of the post war Lang Long 
Oh, that Hoover, whole thing is amazing. Right? Where where the political parties are both totally corrupt. They're going to lynch each other. The the sheriff is corrupt. Everybody's corrupt, you know, and and awful and venal. And it's like it's a way of showing that the that the system is so fucked up that these two guys are the only logical the folks in the world, essentially, who are living on their own, by their own wits, that yes, they're criminals, but at least they're not corrupt, you know, which is classic, but also interesting. I loved it. Well, wait a minute. I thought the party coming in was law and order. Yes, it was the law and order party. And of course, the law and order party follows law and order. Those politicians, I mean, if they were going to hang them, well, no, actually, technically, the new sheriff is going to try to keep them from hanging them. That's why he leaves. Remember, at one point he leaves and leaves the old man there to keep an eye on them. Well, it's the old sheriff. The old sheriff was so in bed with these politicians that as soon as the new sheriff leaves, he's like, yeah, no, you out. Yeah. But he knocks out the old guy who was with the new sheriff. Right. 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 I mean, it was yeah. pretty great. Right. It was cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was I thought it was a more idealistic view that this new law and order party is taking over. Now I'm more with you that the law and order party would be probably the law and order party for a month or two until they get deeply entrenched in power. No, no, they were, they, I mean, his film. And if you know, I'm sure if you haven't seen it, fury, uh, right. is an incredible indictment of lynch mobs and, and, you know, not only the American system, it's an indictment of the American system, but also of, Nazi Germany. I mean, he split. That was in 36. He had just gotten out by the hair on his chinny, chin, chin. And it's a devastating political allegory. You know, it's a great. Yeah, that's a great movie. Spencer Tracy. It's interesting that after 792 podcasts, that Westerns, which were ubiquitous. I mean, they were the American cinematic form, have fallen so far out of favor to sci-fi to horror to 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 uh, noir to thrillers and to I, I don't know what other some of the other pictures that you that you tend to handle but westerns were the thing everyone made westerns and on tv for the first decade or 15 30 years of tv it was all westerns bat masterson and bonanza and gunsmoke these were the biggest biggest shows on tv and so that they're falling out of favor Maybe worth talking about, I don't know, but that they had these songs, these ballads, these American kind of song structure. You know, what was the movie about? I'm going to tell you the whole story in 30, in three minutes as I sing you the story of rape, rage, murder, and revenge. And the whole thing is structured around this fucking weird song, right? You know, it begins with the song and it ends with the same song. It's a, a weird song, by the way, written by a gentleman named Ken Darby. And I recognize the name of Ken Darby because a lot of these guys in the like 30s and 40s, they were like orchestrators and arrangers and stuff, and they'd work for the record companies. And a lot of these different guys would have, later on, it was famous on television with Perry Como, the Ray Charles Singers. There were a group called the Ken Darby Singers in the 30s and 40s. They would back Bing Crosby. Ken Darby backed Bing Crosby. You're not that old. No, but I'm a big Bing Crosby fan. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> and I have a radio, I've had a radio show for 24 years where I play music basically from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Fantastic. 
This movie, I just checked the dates. This movie came out in May of 52, and High Noon came out, I think, the end of July of 52. Wow. So they both use that that ballad, you know, to kind of carry the, the story and tell the story. But no one really remembers this film the way they remember High Noon. It's a magnificent also shot by an Emma Gray. Fred Sidman was also a, a Austrian. You know, I only know this because I'm teaching a course right now on Dean Martin, and the next course I'm teaching is on Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks comes along seven years later and makes Rio Bravo basically directly because he, uh, High Noon, angered him so much because the hero is like, you know, a cowardly guy who doesn't want to fight these guys by himself. So he goes out and gets the Duke to take on this whole town with just one or two, you know, with a drunk and old man, you know, and Ricky Nelson, right? Did, and does, Ricky does Nelson, right. Yeah. Does he sing the story of, of, of uh, Rio Bravo? Is there a song? There is a song, but it's not the legend of Rio Bravo. No, but yeah, it's, it's just that the Rio Bravo rolls along, Duke. and it's Dean who actually sings it, I believe, in the movie. You get that amazing musical sequence with Ricky Nelson, Dean Martin, and Walter Brennan. <laughs> Sitting there singing, right? In the, in oh, yeah. The yeah. Singing. I, I want to take your plays, classes. Uh, I want to take a class on Dean Martin and one on Howard but it is it's interesting that both those films, High Noon and Ranch of Notorious, made by Austrian Jewish emigres taking on these American, classic American oeuvre. What, Themes, I guess. Genre, you know, and, and doing, doing stuff that's so, at the time, probably out there. I mean, High Noon, which is still a, you know, it's a classic, classic, fabulous film. I don't know. What was the reaction to it? Were people like, oh, my God, there's a Western with Gary Cooper playing a, a coward or playing a guy who is not sure he wants to fight? That's crazy. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was a I mean, it was a hit. I mean, they they oh, sure won the best picture. I think the the song, I think, also won best song, I believe. Or, I know it was nominated. Me, oh my darling. Yeah, I know it was right. nominated. I, I don't know. And then the other thing, again, I hate to go back to this. But when I'm listening to this song in, in, you know, Hate, Murder, and Revenge song there, the Ballad of Chuckaluck, it, again, it made me think of Blazing Saddles, which, of course, Mel Brooks got Frankie Lane to sing without knowing that the film he was singing about was a comedy. He just thought oh, he was recording no a, a, a Yeah, he just thought he was recording a song Here from a Western. Blazing Saddle. Never thought about, what the hell does that mean? What is it? Yeah, you can't really ride a Blazing Saddle tour that easily. Is, it hurts. He came from the 50s. I mean, that's when he was most popular. And like we're saying, all these song, all these movies are in the 50s and they're Westerns. And again, the 50s, like you said, television, there was some two or three year period where like 40% of the shows on TV. Well, they all had Westerns. songs, right? They called him Bat, Batmaster's son. That's when I remember. Well, and then in Gunsmoke was like the longest running television program until The Simpsons, until the since Simpsons he did it I finally. Think. Yeah. 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 They were 20, I'd say about 24 years, something like that. That that almost sounds as long as Law and Order. And I wonder, I mean, our audience, your audience, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old, right? I'm I'm six, okay, I'm 61. How old do you think I am? 79. No, I don't know. You're, you're, I think you just turned 60 like three days ago. Three days ago. Nice. 
January 9th is my kid's birthday. Ah, um, I'm January 7th. I just turned 60. Mazel tov. And I'm not amused. Does anyone know who James Arness is out there? Does oh, anyone yeah. know who Lauren Green? No, you and I do. The world. You know, these were the hugest TV stars. They were not huge movie stars, but they were huge, huge, huge TV stars, household name, superstars. I'm not sure people could pick out James Arness in a, in a lineup. Many folks. Oh, Everyone probably not said, now. I could, fucker. I know who he is. I could if he was dressed like a giant carrot from outer space. Oh, uh, uh, he was the thing. I would. I even know who Richard Boone is. How many people remember who sure, Richard Boone is? Sure, Heck Ramsey. But he was also, what was his name? Um, Have Gun Will Travel. He was Paladin. Paladin, yeah. Paladin, yeah. Well, Paladin. and he was also in a shit ton of Rankin and Bass movies. So that's where I know him from. Yeah, he was, the vo- he was in The Last Dinosaur. He did the voice of Smaug. He was in, um, yeah. And he was also in one of my favorite movies, Winter Kills. I think I was introduced to Boone by those two latter latter-day John Wayne Westerns, which was Big Jake, and then, of course, the last one, The Shootist. He's in both of those, and he's fabulous in them. I guess we could talk all night. They're just rabbit holes worth falling, and there are. You know, Fritz Lang, Lang, Marlena Dietrich, I mean, some of these folks are what a pleasure to watch this movie. Honestly, I'd never seen it. Somebody, you know, you asked me, would I do one of these? I said, of course I would. I picked a movie I'd never seen to see, you know, a cool movie I'd never seen. My kid was like, why'd you pick a movie you haven't seen? Why didn't you pick one that you knew by heart? I'm like, what the hell is the fun of that? I know it by heart. I want to see something. That's totally the right attitude. Cause there are too many people where I'm like, Hey, you want to, I haven't seen any of these movies on this list. I'm like, so I haven't seen half these movies on this list. This is for me to educate myself. Every movie that you love, you hadn't seen. It's as much for me to educate other people as it is to educate myself. You know, this is like, all right, so I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll pick out a movie. I'll find as many articles as I can and books and all these things. Like I was surprised just the paucity of materials when it comes to Ranch and Notorious, like, there's not not a, a lot of stuff criterion edition of it. There's no audio commentary. There's not like a BFI book dedicated to it. Yeah, like I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a bigger movie just mm. because there are a lot of articles about it online. But right. like, and there's some scholarly articles as well because this is a very interesting movie. And there's a lot of layers to it, and you can read it in a lot of different ways. You know, the, like just I'm trying to remember. There's one author who is just like going through like well altar can be altar like a like something that you put something sacred on or it could be altar like to alter something to change something got into like castration anxiety and all this stuff i'm like wow okay you know good articles nice writing on all this but i'm like it feels like there should be more it just feels like that this should be more of a known well, we should transcribe this this profound conversation and type it up and well you know i think some of those really heavy academic uh, articles about things like that. Just my own personal uh, opinion from, from the masses. I think a lot of that is total bullshit. Most of the directors said basically the same thing that, you know, when they asked some of these directors, well, what did you mean when you had him drive down the, 
the wrong side of the road. And I meant that he was in a hurry and he wasn't paying attention. That's all I meant. There was nothing. It meant that the light was, you know, we we had 30 minutes of of dark to turn the car around would have taken too much time. So we just fucking went for it. And I'm sorry you noticed it, but, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Some of this stuff, I think, is, I mean, some of it is fun and fascinating. And I do think, I'm not saying that, Nothing that you see in a film has a deeper meaning. Obviously, it, it does in a lot of films, but sometimes some of those articles, the stuff they pull out, I just think is is crazy stuff. The, the only thing I really found book wise, I'm sure you guys have probably read this. Who the Devil Made It? You know the the Bogdanovich one with the different, and he had Lang in it. So I read the Lang interview. I had seen more Lang movies probably than I had Dietrich movies. And that's why when you asked me whenever it was, you gave me the list of like, what would you be interested in doing this year? I picked one that I know very well. I picked one that I had seen once a few years back and never seen it before or since. And then I picked this one, which I had never seen before. And I picked this one because it was Dietrich even more so than being Lang. I was interested in seeing more Dietrich stuff because just in the last few years, I've started to to go out of my way to watch a Dietrich film when I can. Uh, she's, like you say, she's a fascinating figure. <laughs> and, you know, when you read and listen to some of the things from her daughter, you know, Maria Riva, um, some of the things she had to say about her and all of the different uh, men and women that she had uh, relationships with, and, and she's just astonishing. And then the whole thing about how hard she worked during World War II, how much she hated Hitler, you know, and that that whole thing. Um, and again, now until I read this, I did not know that aspect of of Lang's life about the fact that supposedly Goebbels had offered him the the leadership of Ufa, Ufa, and he said, well, let me think about it, and then got on a train and left for Paris as soon as <laughs> went he went to the bank, got his money, and got yeah. that, and hid his money, like, in the in the cafe car or something. It's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a great, I think it, it's based on real life, but there is some fictional stuff to it. The screenwriter, Howard A. Rodman, he wrote a book called Destiny Express, oh, yes. which is all about that last little bit of laying Fritz and Thea von Harbu and the way that they left. Um, oh, wow. Germany. It's really good. It's a great book. The Thea von Harbu story and, and her part of his career or his part of her career. She's an extraordinary figure. Uh, must've been an amazing character and probably doesn't get nearly enough credit for the success of Fritz Lang launching his career. His talent is obvious, but but she wrote all of those early movies that he did or co-wrote them with him, you know. I was hoping in one of those articles there'd be more about the actual jewelry that Vern gave to his fiance that then that Kinch takes and then eventually he doesn't gift it to Alter, but that's her cut is that piece. And then when Arthur Kennedy sees that on her on her dress just the whole movie stops like he goes from basically being turned on by her to like horror in his face and the way that they're cutting like they cut over to 
Mel Ferrer and he's just like smiling and kind of nodding his head. Then they back to Kennedy. Kennedy's whole face is just like falling and falling. And then they start to do like these quick cuts with all of the other bad guys at Rancho Notorious. And I'm just like, oh, okay, this is great. And that's like almost dead center right in the middle of the film. It's like you still have half the movie to go that's at crazy. that point. And suddenly it just kicks everything into gear. Bank robbery and a shootout and. I mean, and the, and the and the scene in the bar, the salute, you know, almost shootout is fabulous. It's really that is an interesting scene because it, the way he shoots it, like she's singing and she's singing and she still has the the thing draped over that piece of jewelry for the long, like for the first half of that song, and then she moves it, and then all of a sudden, like you're saying, he's kind of getting drawn in by her, and then all of a sudden. She, takes it off and he sees it and then if you remember which i thought was kind of really interesting how when she's done singing all the guys are like you know applauding for her and they gather around her and he's like basically jumping in there and trying to shoo them out of the way like he's gonna rip it off her right then until one guy says the lookout and the lookout comes right there in the window and it's like cut off all of a sudden I thought that was really cool the way that was done because, you know, he's about to destroy everything right now. And like you say, you still have a half a film to go. Then he has to suddenly regroup and then he starts to change and becomes that whole, like, I would love to give you the jewelry and fine dresses and just starts to chat her up and all this and then yeah to your point you're like oh did he start to really fall in love with her or what's going on and then more than the other criminals that are there then you suddenly have to start thinking because he seems to have formed a genuine friendship with Frenchie and now he's stepping into this and he's fucking over Frenchie and I don't think he actually means to but then that causes this Doesn't whole care. other rift destroy yeah anything for hate murder and revenge the the other great super movie cliche is when uh, Frenchie and she come back together after a long time on the ranch and he speaks the fireplace and then he grabs her and embrace and he should co- cut down to the fireplace. The flame goes up. The flame goes up. I couldn't believe that. I, in my notes, I wrote the flame goes up. They are fucking. Yeah, exactly. But that's what I loved was like the audience could all knew what was happening. We all know, you know, let, let us use our imaginations. And, and it's like, there it goes, you know, rub two sticks together. Speaking of great Germanic and Viennese and Austrian directors, that's, that's one of my all time favorite Billy Wilder stories where he was upset when he shot the film, the seven year itch, because I guess on stage, it's quite clear on stage that the Yule and the Monroe characters sleep together in the play. But in the film, of course, it couldn't do that. And Wilder wanted, uh, he said to the, to the producers, whoever, who said, you can't show that. And he's like, no, no, no. All I want to show is the next morning when Yule's getting up out of bed, he finds a hairpin hmm. on the match, on the bed. And they said, no, you can't do it. And he and Wilder was so pissed off because it was so subtle, you know, like you're saying, John, that people it wouldn't be it wouldn't be obvious, but it would be enough so people could know oh, yeah. what had happened. 
so that anyone who'd ever had sex would know what it meant. <laughs> right, right. right. And that's right. You just be like, oh, and somebody left a hairpin. In his they, exactly. If it's a 10-year-old kid, they're not going to know what the hairpin is. Yeah, this movie is rife with cliches, but they spin them in such a way that it doesn't feel like, okay, here's the scene. Okay. Oh, it's the group back at the hideout. Something went wrong with the robbery. Speaking of restaurant so dogs. Lang. It's Lang's. It's as you said, you really feel like you're in the hands of a master because somebody else's hands would have just been a real programmer and we wouldn't be talking about it today, I guarantee you. Even with that cast, as you said, there's a lot of Daytrick pictures that you haven't seen because they were made by, we've all seen Touch of Evil a couple of times. That was her even five years from now, where where Heston, not Heston, uh, Wells really brings her out of retirement to play another version of this part, right? And he really drags her through the mud, you know, in that little Hatsville reputer wherever she's working, you know, wherever she what was Touch of Evil, 61 or 59? No, 57 or 8, I think. 58. 58? Okay, so I think um, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, I think, was 57, right? Right. Another yeah. version of this character. Right. Speaking Another. Wilder, yeah. That's a great. I, that, was, that was always the one I knew best because I was a big Wilder fan. So that's where I may have. That's probably where I saw her. First, except that, of course, I saw um, uh, Blue Angel in college. Oh, yeah. Well, it's mandatory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who directed Destry, Destry Rides again? I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. That's 1939, I believe. It's not Marshall, is it? it Everybody is at home is yelling. It's George Marshall. It's you George Marshall. Of course, you knew. Wow. Yeah, that is a fun movie. And, of course, that's interesting that it was Marshall because, of course, that means that the studio felt it was more of a comedy than anything, too, because that's what Marshall was was pretty much. Well, known. it is right. I mean, that's yeah. that's, that's that's more of a comedy, right? There's a, the other little, the other just tiny little moment in this film that I kind of I'm like, wow, I like that they, you know, that they put that together like that. Is how remember when at the ranch and the sheriff's deputy or whatever notices that the fresh horse tracks had let out of there. And then he comes in to kind of, you know, save the day with the idea of, Oh, they, they got away from me. They're in another Canyon. And he goes over to the guy and he's like, let me see your hands. And of course we know from the beginning of the film that he was in fact a ranch hand. So he, he says, Oh yeah, you, you couldn't get that, you know, unless you've been doing that for 10 years or something like that. Um, that was another one of those really little kind of subtle moments that I kind of liked that someone took the time to, to think of that, you know? Yeah. I wanted to show him as breaking that horse and actually proving some value around the ranch itself. I really like the final gun down that happens in this movie, especially this whole thing of there's a rifle at your back. And then you see Arthur Kennedy take care of the guy with the rifle, but then there's a one of those stones that, that you can sharpen blades on out there or whetstone and the guys there scraping and, and breaks through the, the ropes and then gets his gun anyway. So, and then that whole thing of how alter takes that bullet for Frenchie. She loves him that much. And she jumps in front of the bullet and takes it. And then I don't know, but I was seeing the way she's laid out on the bed, looking very similar to the way that Arthur Kennedy's fiance was laid out in that jail mm. or in that, that that store mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's good. I actually didn't think of that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Were they the only two women in the entire movie? Yeah, I think they were, right? For all intents and purposes. Well, right? other than the horse race on, on the back of the cowboys. Oh, I mean, right. But, you know, talking about like characters who actually said. I don't think anybody speaks. Yeah. I think it's almost all male voices other than those right, two women. Right. Both die. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing about that final shootout, Mike, that I thought was really interesting and also frustrating, and I felt like that was probably purposeful, is that. Kennedy spends this entire movie, right? He's on this quest for revenge to kill the guy who killed his fiance. And of course, in the end, he's not the one who gets to kill him. Frenchie kills him. And I'm like, wow, that's not fair. Well, because, because revenge is a cold, he says it in the song, right? It's, it's a cold dish or it's a cold ride to hell or whatever the hell the song is. That you know, if you're gonna take that, if you're gonna take up that gun for revenge, you're gonna kiss, you're gonna step into hell, basically. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of yeah, movies like two that. graves. Yeah. 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 When he can confronts Tinch and he's slapping him and like, okay, well, here, I'll give you a gun, you know, and just like goading him, goading him, goading him, and then anything to shoot him and not just shoot him in the back, not just you know. Yeah, and then the freaking sheriff comes in. I'm like, oh man. And then that barman sells him out. That's another funny thing when you think about the time, A, the time in which it was made, 52, and the time in which it's set, the 1870s, that a guy could legitimately protect himself by not being willing to engage in the other guy. I mean, nowadays they would just blow you away. They don't care. I know? felt threatened. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Stand your ground. Right. But he that was like the, the best defense was to literally do nothing. All right, gentlemen, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Remember the stories that kept you awake at night? I'm living in that closet, Dr. Fenner. Can you still hear the screams? I love having the children for dinner. All from your television set. In the night gallery. A dark side. Midnight viewing. The Horror Anthology Podcast. Join hosts Father Malone, Mike White, and Chris Stashew as they exhume some of the most infamous horror television of all time. Midnight Viewing from Weirding Way Media. Until next time. Ben Waite stole everything in the Old West, from gold bars to ladies' hearts. Don't anybody move. If you move, I'll kill him. And his gang was the roughest and toughest in the territory. An old man dropped dead from looking at his wife. My own grandmother fought the Indians for 60 years, then choked to death on lemon pie. But for this hired gun, catching Ben was the easy part. If you start across this uh, eight feet between us, I'm going to pull both triggers at once. Getting him aboard the 310 to Yuma... That was something else. Now, what do you figure you're going to die for? Van Heflin and Glenn Ford. 310 to Yuma. That is right. Western Month continues next week with a look at 310 to Yuma. Speaking of Frankie Lane singing a theme song. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jonathan and Otto. So, Otto, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, Mike, you know, I just have my nose to the grindstone working on two books right now. Um, 
a baseball book, which right now the plan is it'll be published probably next year, 2025, by McFarland. And then I'm working on the Dean Martin book that you and I have discussed. So there you go. When's that Victor Buono book coming out? Oh, God, with the Victor Buono. 2026? Actually, Victor Buono. I showed Robin and the Seven Hoods to my class today. And, of course, Victor Buono is in there. And we talked a little bit about Victor Buono. You're right, Mike. The people the people are interested in Victor. They want it. That, they that's want a it. great that would be incredible. I want to read a, a Victor Buono book. Yeah, but see, Mike, unfortunately, like you just said about Rancho Notorious, not a lot of information out there. No, you're gonna to have to talk to the widow, to the children. Oh, there was no widow or children. Oh, yeah, of Victor I Buono. guess you're right. <laughs> Why was that? <laughs> I don't Robin in the Seven Hoods, one of the funniest opening credit sequences ever because of the whole thing where they're animating the eyes looking back and forth. Right. And then you have both Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Falk in that movie. So together they make a pair of eyes. I haven't seen Well, so they didn't do just the one eye for them. Right. And I'm like, come on. Oh, this no. would have been perfect. An opportunity missed. And Jonathan, how about yourself? What are you working on? I'm working uh, again for the Tribeca Festival. We are doing Escape from Tribeca again. We have, I can't tell you too much, but I think we're showing The Unknown with Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford with an incredible superstar presenter that we haven't locked in yet. But if we get him, I will tell you about him. An amazing, amazing person. We're trying to get the 50th anniversary showing of Sugarland Express. We are hoping to have the 20th anniversary of Saw with the filmmakers with Juan and Winnell and Tobin Bell. Films like that. We're going to have a really great program this year. So if you guys are in New York, early June, you're going to come to Tribeca and play with me, Escape from Tribeca. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs> One die, not two die, two, they all do what I want The one who can't eat a trap Four sexy dices, they wait for my decision And then they start fighting, it's my day What you get it? Now I'm sick, a little bit Oh no, no, no Chocolate, you're a gambler, chocolate You're a gambler, chocolate You're a gambler, chocolate You're a gambler now Chocolate, you're a gambler, chocolate, you're a gambler, chocolate, you're a gambler now.